This is GB News. Well, it's also the hindsight issue. Here's a lady who wrote a, a very funny, I enjoyed it, Friends uh, sitcom 25 years ago. And now she's going, oh, I should have known better 25 years ago. I should have had somebody in from an ethnic diverse background. I mean, when you write something and uh, it's there and you sell it uh, to the studio, now you have to say, oh, hold on a second. I should have put somebody in. I mean, to me, that's tokenism. The Briefing with Arlene Foster. Every Friday at three. Good evening. A report out today compiled by members of parliament says we're about 100,000 staff short in the National Health Service. The waiting list is now up to 6.6 .6 million. And as I predicted on the first show I did here a year ago, more and more people are now using private medicine. A 39% increase in those over the last year who've gone to private GPs because they just can't wait for a fortnight to get an appointment and get a diagnosis on the NHS. It isn't working. It's broken. And yet we've been in denial about this for year after year after year. Well, let me ask you, the audience, would you go private? Let me know what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, I read a figure this morning. It can't be right. It says that the government are spending the equivalent of £10,000 per household on healthcare in this country. It's ridiculous. It can't be right. Can it? Well, joining me is GB News' business <laughs> editor, Liam Halligan. Liam, you've studied the NHS, the expenditure, the results in terms of what we get in, you know, bang for our buck. Is that figure right? It is right, Nigel. Last year, we spent 12% of GDP. That's of the annual economic turnover of the country on health which places us among the 19 biggest industrial economies, the so-called OECD economies, mm. fourth out of that 19. So we're not only spending a more than average among the advanced countries, we're spending well above the average. Okay. So you can't then argue that the NHS is underfunded, though, of course, every single discussion in politics we ever had about the NHS isn't about reform, isn't about how, as you say, we get better bang for our buck. Mm. It's about... The spending of money as a virility symbol, as a symbol of our morality, however it's actually spent. So we're up to 12% from, what, 7.5%, just three years ago, four years ago? It moves around. That 12% number's partly because the economy was smaller last year, but then other economies, because of lockdown, yeah. but other economies shrank too. The, the, the basic point here, Nigel, is that across the piece, from decade to decade, we are spending either average or above average of the OECD economies on the NHS. And yet, and yet, there's an amazing report out over the weekend by an analyst called Tim Knox at the Civitas think tank Analysing the OEC data of health outcomes, he showed out of the top 19 industrialised countries, the NHS, it gives me no pleasure to say this, far from being in the, West, the best in the world when it comes to survival rates from heart disease, strokes and particularly cancer, we are at the bottom or near the bottom of the league table in pretty much all those outcomes. There are areas where the NHS does excel, but across those major forms of disease which affect so many people in our country, cause so much human misery and indeed tragedy, the NHS is performing very badly by international standards compared to other advanced economies, even though our expenditure is average or above.
So this narrative, it's a world-beating NHS. It's the envy of the world. I've been hearing that from the Prime Minister and others. How do we break this? Because my experience in politics was if you even tried to dare That's suggest right. that maybe if there was an insurance element to this, yeah. we might get a better delivery. Still free at the point of use. No one's questioning free at the point of use. No, no, but in terms of Suddenly how you're privatising NHS. Suddenly you want a stripped-down yeah. American system. Suddenly you're completely immoral. And you don't respect the and, nurses and And you doctors. don't respect the nurses yeah. so, so, are we... And, and I found this impossible. You know, ten years ago, yeah. I was trying to make these arguments... And now it's even arguments. more impossible. It's rhetorical trench warfare whenever you try to have a rational debate about how we can make the NHS more efficient. And yet, this is an organisation with 1.2 billion million employees, you know, almost up there with the Chinese army and the Red Army. Mm, it's one of the mm. top biggest three or four organisational employees in the world, and yet we're not allowed to talk about how we make it more efficient, even if we say at the outset, repeatedly, at the beginning of every sentence, I want free at the point of use healthcare, how do we make it work? And this Civitas study really is alarming because it proves that funding of the NHS is completely respectable by international standards, yeah. clinical outcomes are really bad, and here's the kicker, up to 75,000 deaths each year happen in the UK from treatable diseases. And we are 18 out of 19 advanced countries, right at the bottom of the Devast league table. Devastating The only figures. country that performs worse is America. Devastating figures. We were the, of course, the NHS was the envy of the world. In the, in the mid-40s, when it was created, it was absolutely path-breaking. It was incredible. And you and I would agree there are tens of thousands of nurses and thousands of doctors who do a good job. Some yeah. of them don't do a good job. Yeah. They're human. But the majority do a good job, want to do the right thing. The question is, how do we organise ourselves so we're spending this huge slug of taxpayers' money in a way well, that is as efficient as possible? Well, the first thing we have to do is have a debate, an open, honest And it's impossible. Debate. And it's... Well, I, I, I don't believe in impossible. <laughs> I, I, you know, leaving the EU was impossible. Yeah, we do, do you see with Sir Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, any change in this I'm debate? afraid I don't. Yes, Liz, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are talking about funding of the NHS, but that's the only discussion we can have. It's a Dutch auction of who can spend more, who can manipulate their economic assumptions the most mm. to pretend they're going to spend more without raising tax. It is, it is like a Dutch auction. That's the only debate in town. Crazy. And we have, of course, had various reforms over the years, it's been about moving deck chairs on the Titanic rather than looking across Europe. Are we allowed to say that? There's some great healthcare systems mm. in Europe compared to ours. We can learn from Europe, I'm sure you'd agree. The French system, the no, Dutch I system, I, the I've Scandinavian seen... countries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've all lived and worked in Europe and their systems are better than ours when it comes to health. And a lot of the trouble we have is the massive vested interests within the NHS. The doctors' union, they will brook no change. The nursing unions, in many cases, a lot more radical than the rank-and-file nurses and doctors, respectively, yeah. in most cases. And anyone that even suggests... A, a social insurance model, a contributory model mm. for people who can afford yeah, it. It's impossible. It now, I see that. Liam, I've been predicting for the year, a year here on mm. the People's Channel, the GB News, that people would increasingly opt out and pay for hip replacements, yeah. knee replacements, because they couldn't wait two years, and indeed GP appointments up 39%. The waiting list for procedures is now 6.6 .6 million. It ain't going down. It, you know, it's going to keep on going up. Would it make sense? 
to encourage people to opt out of the NHS by giving them tax incentives for taking out private health care plans to relieve some of the burden. You know what? I think cynical politicians won't do that because they know that the people can afford it will opt out anyway. Look, if you, well, if you walk into hospital, everyone knows if you are, but if a middle-class person walks into a hospital or into a GP surgery and they look as if they can afford private health care, they're not going to get... Yeah, they're not going to be put forward on the waiting list, yeah. are they? It's almost expected that, of course, you're going to go private. So you're down the road, son, and you can go private. It's almost as if the NHS is systematically ushering people away from the, the frontline services that they're paying for, huge, well, amounts, of, no, huge amounts of yeah. tax, in order to almost force them to go private. And this, so what we're getting is a kind of two-tier system by default almost, because the system, even though we spend tens of billions of pounds on it every year, is so chronically inefficient. And look, doctors and nurses who are screaming at the TV and radio now, just let me say to you, I know many, many doctors and many, many nurses who are over a few drinks at a dinner party, people I was at university with, people I know in my family. I'm from an Irish family, right? There's lots of nurses knocking about in my extended family. The inefficiencies they report in the NHS are absolutely criminal. We have to get hold of this. Otherwise, I fear, Nigel, the whole concept of free at the point of use healthcare will be deemed unaffordable, mm. completely unobtainable for an economy, and that will be a tragedy. We're going to keep this debate going. We certainly Liam, are. thank you. And here on GB News, we will make sure there is a free, open, honest debate about this. Now, it is, of course, the Tory leadership contest and the first head-to-head -head debate between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss takes place at 9 o'clock tonight on the BBC. And it's been a, a war of words over the weekend and the two big subjects being discussed yesterday and today. One, illegal immigration across the channel subject I know a fair bit about, and the other, of course, China, which they're now talking about today. Now, I was absolutely amazed yesterday by Rishi Sunak because he put together this slick, smooth video about what he's going to do to stop the channel crossings. And just have a look at the opening clips of this video because, frankly, you could have knocked me down with a feather. You know, a Rishi Sunak production. And there, within the first couple of seconds of the video, is one Nigel Farage. Numbers of people crossing the channel in small boats has climbed from 297 in 2018 to almost 29,000 This is completely utterly out of control. 254 people crossed the channel on Sunday. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. Is he saying to Tory party members, I'm with Nigel on this one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He backs me on this one. Well, if that wasn't enough, guess what happened next? Yes. <laughs> Is this a Nigel Farage tribute show? Well, it means it means I must have got something right over the years. But what Rishi has had to say on the cross-channel trade doesn't get to the heart of it. I've said it before, I'll say it again, all the while we stay part of the European Convention on Human Rights incorporated into UK law by the Human Rights Act, we will not stop this trade. And now Rishi is talking about China. I've never heard him talk about China before. Suddenly they pose the greatest threat to us in the world. I doubt the man's sincerity completely, which leaves us, I guess, with Liz Trust. Now, somebody who has been a cheerleader is Mark Francois, MP for Rayleigh and Wickford. And, Mark, 
I mean, so much so as a cheerleader, you were sending out things on the ERG letterhead saying trust is the person to back, even when there were more Eurosceptic people in the race. So to begin, give us your pitch. Why Liz Truss? Well, firstly, because I believe she is more robust on Europe. I mean, we've got two good candidates. The, the, the job of the parliamentary party was to narrow it down to two credible prime ministers. I believe we've done that. But the question is, which is the best of the two? And I think it's Liz. One, because I believe she's more robust on Europe than Rishi. We can go into that. Two, I'm attracted to her tax-cutting agenda. You know, I'm, I want to vote for low-tax trush, not high-tax, you know, Sunak. Thirdly, I believe she'll be more robust in terms of defence and foreign policy than Rishi, because I think he's boxed in by Treasury orthodoxy. She'll be more robust on Russia. She'll be more robust on China. One of her biggest backers, the chairman of her campaign, is Ian Duncan Smith, yeah. who, of course, has been sanctioned by the Chinese, one of the handful of British MPs to have that, quote, honour. And, and I also, uh, uh, as a former councillor, and there's a lot of councillors in the Tory party, I'm pleased to say. I'm very attracted to her policy of abolishing what she calls these Stalinist top-down housing targets that force local authorities to build so many houses within their boundaries in a given time, okay. irrespective of whether or not well, local infrastructure no, no, can you, cope you, with you, it. You, so, so there's four, I hope, give us solid reasons. reasons. Yeah. Well, let's just have a look at one or two of those. Yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, tax is going to dominate this debate, yeah. but, but for now, the big focus is on the cross-channel trade and on China, and I'm guessing on the BBC tonight those issues will come up. On illegal migration across the channel, she's much weaker than Sunak. I mean, what she has said is she will increase border force staff by 20%. Do you know what, Mark? You can double it, treble it, quadruple it. You can put the Royal Navy in the channel. It makes no difference whatsoever if those, once they've crossed the line, are brought into Dover and no-one gets returned. She has not got any credible policy to deal with this? Well, I serve on the House of Commons Defence Committee. We re it's an all-party committee. We recently produced a report on putting the Navy in the channel. We said one of the problems is it just means we're more efficient at picking the people exactly. up. Exactly. So, so no, I'm just saying there's, exactly. the Defence Committee agrees with that. Where I think Liz is right is she said we need to make better use of the arrangements we have with Rwanda. Why haven't we done that yet? You know full well it's because the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg interfered with that process. Yes. The flights were good, were good to go. I personally think we should reject that interference. In the long term... Oh, I know you do, but it's Liz Truss I'm talking about. Well, uh, I'm, if this crops up tonight... I'm not, you know, pretending to be the future Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I'm sure it'll crop up tonight and see what she says. Suella Braverman, one of her strongest yeah. allies, she's prepared to countenance leaving the ECHR. And I'm hopeful there's going to be in September a new... Bill of Rights bill, which, uh, which Dominic Raab is overseeing. Yeah, I know. No, no, I no, know. hang on. Know. You've asked, you know, that it may be that via that bill we can legally shut the ECHR out of this decision and then get the flights going. I'd like the flights to start... But Rwanda have said they only have room for 200 people, not the tens of thousands that Boris Johnson told us at that speech in Lyd Airport. Well, I think that number can certainly be improved upon. I think one of the reasons the Rwandans have hesitated is because of what's happened with regard to the ECHR judgment. My understanding is what was negotiated was, was beyond that. But here's what I think the problem is, Nigel, is when people voted to take back control, 
I think they thought that meant that the, the European Union and European judges would stop interfering in our daily life, mm. whether it was the European Court of Justice. Absolutely. Right, OK, you know, the man in the pub thought, yeah. I'm yeah. voting to get and rid they're of angry. this. Well, and they're angry. I understand well, that. I'm going to watch very carefully what she says tonight on this debate. Now, one of the consequences, of course, of tens of thousands of people now coming illegally every year is they're being housed in hotels all over the country. And GB News revealed a hotel in your constituency, the Chichester Hotel, uh, was, you know, on the fast track to be one of those hotels. And you intervened in the House of Commons and said this. I have attempted via my office to contact the owners of the Chichester Hotel on multiple occasions to seek urgent answers to these very alarming suggestions. Yet they continue to ignore requests for clarity and answers from me as the locally elected MP and indeed from the local and now even national press. Given all of this, I have requested an urgent meeting next week with the Minister for Immigration in which I will seek to ascertain the exact details of these initial proposals alongside taking an opportunity in my usual understated manner, Mr Deputy Speaker, to raise my objections face to face. So you're doing it a bit as an MP, saying it's not the right place, it doesn't fit, there are lots of schools in the air, all the things that MPs say. But, Mark, your government has allowed all these people in. We've got to put them somewhere. Well, as I say, as I said in the Commons, fundamentally, we need to stop the cross-channel trade. You and I both know... I mean, let's call... You're well, a, you're well, not, we all know that. Yeah, we all know that. Well, what I, I'm saying to you is, neither candidate for your party, who's going to be the next Prime Minister, is offering any solutions that will work. That's my point. Well, I think the Rwandan solution will work, Nigel, if we can get the European judges out of the way. I think it can work if it's given a chance. Look, this is a vile trade. These people are utterly heartless. They don't care if people drown in the channel. It's all about the money. We as a nation are being morally blackmailed, and I don't think we should be morally blackmailed by anybody. So if we can solve that problem and get the flights going, we don't need the accommodation at the Chichester Hotel, which is completely ill-suited, and then we don't need it anywhere else. And you've told me before, you've been around mm. the country, uh, and there's just as much anxiety wherever you go. Oh, yes. not just, I mean, you know, I've been inundated with emails and, and telephone calls. Oh, you calls. go to the northeast, the northwest, it's everywhere. Right, yeah. so, so we, 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 yeah. are, we are in... It, it, will, it will cost you the next election. Well, in terms of needing to stop these cross-channel... Uh, migrants, then I think you and I are in what the Americans would call violent agreement, if I can use that phrase. You can. Well, I, I'm going to be watching tonight at 9 o'clock, your preferred candidate and the other one too. Funny, isn't it? As it's so easy to cross the channel illegally, it's been very difficult over the weekend, having paid lots of money to Eurostar, or go on a ferry to cross the channel the other way. In the face of a 6.6 .6 million waiting list and more problems coming down the track, I asked you earlier, would you now be prepared to go private? Anthea says, I wish I could go private. Unfortunately, like many, I don't have the financial means to be able to do so, which means certain conditions go untreated. Jonathan says, I paid in all my life. I am a pensioner, don't work and cannot afford to go private. Jonathan, there are millions of people like you, who feel they've paid in for all these years and they're now, they can't even go and see their GP. James says, only if I get a refund on my taxes. Well, James, I would be all for giving people tax relief for taking out private insurance policies. It would relieve the burden on the NHS, is my view. And finally, Stuart says, going private for some things is a must now, 
if you have the money. We have to accept NHS healthcare isn't the same as it once was, and we shouldn't kid ourselves, it'll improve any time soon. Well, one thing that hasn't improved is the M20 uh, and the port of Dover, and it was pretty blooming awful for people over the, over the weekend. As you know, all the schools broke up, or the last of the schools broke up on Friday. The big getaway, and particularly after two years of COVID, and so traffic into Dover was at pre-pandemic levels. But please, 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 don't think delays at Dover, problems on the M20 are anything new. I thought we can show you this headline. New passport checks lead to 10-mile traffic jam leading into Dover. That's from 2015. We can show you Operation Stack raised in the House of Commons. That'd be 2007. Costs for Operation Stack mounting up from 2005, and I could go all the way back to 1988. Once or twice, there were strikes on this side of the channel, but normally it was the French fisherman or somebody else a go slow, causing us all these problems. So there's nothing new. But Pierre-Henri Dumont, the MP for Calais, says it's all because of Brexit. I wonder... Are the French being willfully vindictive? Did they deliberately have too few passport control officers in Dover on Saturday and Sunday morning? Well, let's go to Paris and speak to Peter Allen, who's very much a friend of this programme. And we always, Peter, come to you to find out what the mood of the political class in Paris is. Over here, everyone's fuming. We're being punished for Brexit. How's this being seen in Paris? Hello, Nigel. Well, first thing I can tell you is that there are travel problems all over France uh, this time of year, and there always are. Half the country chooses to uh, leave home and uh, normally travel across France. So the French are very, very uh, loyal to uh, French destinations for their holidays, and that leads to huge delays on uh, motorways, on trains, and in any other form of uh, transport. If you look uh, at the situation in Calais, and indeed all the problems related to the English Channel coast, whether it's fishing, whether it's immigrants, or as in this uh, particular case, um, hold-ups uh, on the Dover-Calais route, you can look at them two ways, uh, te in technical terms, and that's the way most French people are looking at them, is the real answer to your question, Nigel. They're not yeah. philosophizing, they're not sitting there thinking, well, look, would things have been better before Brexit? Uh, could we have persuaded Britain to stay within the EU? No, they're being extremely pragmatic. There's no great uh, anti-British feeling almost ever uh, here in France. I've lived here 17 years. I've never been aware of that at all. On the contrary, uh, the British, the biggest uh, visitor group to Paris, hugely respected. Uh, at the weekend, we had uh, the Rolling Stones here, biggest rock band in the world. They're, they're British. The French absolutely yeah. love them. And it's the same with culturally, <laughs> socially, in, in all kinds of aspects. And this idea that uh, a few uh, dedicated French women and French men are sitting down working out how to do Britain over this democratic vote in um, 2016, I'd actually agree. I'd disagree with that. Yes, you have one or two... Uh, MPs, you, you, you mentioned Monsieur Dumas there. And yes, we have uh, an administration 
which uh, was very anti-Brexit at the beginning, the Macron administration. And occasionally they take little pops and they say certain uh, things about Britain and the Brexit vote. But generally speaking, what's happening is seen as a classic summer technical problem. And it's set to continue, right. not because of Brexit, but All because right. of technical problems. Peter Allen, thank you very much indeed. But well, I'm joined by Tony Smith, former Director General of UK Border Force. And you know, Peter's point was actually there are travel problems all over France. It isn't, it isn't just the Dover crossing. Uh, although I must say, I felt for a long time we're too reliant on that one route for so many people mm -hmm. and so much freight. You were involved, weren't you, in getting French officials on this side of the channel and British officials on the other side of the channel. So it basically meant if people were illegally or with bad documentation, you didn't have to ship them back. You stopped them from going. And it, but we've always had border checks, even when we were members of the European Union. Isn't this point being lost, Tony Smith? Yes, it is really, Nigel. We've always had um, uh, border checks with France before we joined the EU. And you're right, the extension in Dover was what we call juxtaposed control. Yeah. So on my watch, even when I was in the border force, I quite often got blamed wrongly, Nigel, for queues in Dover. And I had to explain to people that actually we don't do border checks in Dover, not the UK border force. We do them in Calais, which makes sense because, as you say, it means people who aren't entitled to cross yeah. don't go all the hassle yeah. coming across on the ferry and then being sent back again. And it works well with the foot of the cliffs there, not a lot of room. So it's a well-established model. But the delays we've seen over the last couple of days are not, I think, directly linked to Brexit. I think they're actually a symptom of a failure, really, of the operational management of the French police to get the right number of officers on duty, on the desk, at the right time, with the right... Which I understand. That's happened to me yeah. before. You know, if, you, if your crew gets stuck in the tunnel on the way through, or if the technology doesn't work, it's a problem, but it's an operational problem. I don't think it's so much a political problem. There are new things they have to do, but they don't massively increase the transaction okay, time. Okay, so I mean, this is not you know, a Brexit disaster. And I, and I, yeah, and I, I'm sure that's right. But looking down the track, there are one or two potential problems coming, aren't there? Real problems. Yes, and I think we do need to be worried about that, Nigel, for people using that route uh, generally, and not just that route, but all routes in and out of the European Union, because there is, is something called the EU Smart Borders programme. This has been on the stocks for a long, long time. It's been promised uh, year on year by the European Commission, but the idea will be that uh, all third country nationals, and you know we are now yeah. third country nationals, yeah. will have to uh, register their entry exit. That means give your fingerprint before you travel. There'll be fingerprint photograph taken, US-style traveller, permission to go across. Can you imagine all of them at the foot of Louvre or in no. Calais without absolute grid? We're going to do the same thing, Nigel. I mean, we're very moment about the Wendell European. They still use it. There's no glass, but we Electronic, similar type of arrangement where European citizens will have to register with us before they come. They'll have to also give their fingerprints and their face so that we can recognise them electronically. But surely, so, once they yeah, once they've done it once, they don't need to do it again, do they? That's the key. But that we need to get have a plan now, don't we? Right. To start getting people registered okay, in this thing, and okay. nobody's even. So this is not a problem if it's done once and you've got the right database and you literally. I mean. You don't even need a person, do you? You can just put the passport into one of the machines. Oh, it's fantastic technology now, Nigel. And unbelievable compared right. with... So this is all solvable? It's all solvable, but we need collaboration. We need the ports and the governments to sit down and work out what are we going to do on both sides What's to make sure... That... 
Well, they're talking about next year for twenty for the for the EU smart uh, entry exit system right. twenty twenty three. We're talking about the ETA by twenty twenty four. We've only got a year or two. As far as I know, and I may be wrong, I haven't seen any real dialogue between the ports on either side, the ferry companies, and the governments, which is the only way we're going to be able to get this to work. So it's really important yeah, yeah. Well, to start planning well, now for the future. Nigel. Tony, thank you for coming on and, and and giving us a warning about this, and I hope that the Rishi Sunak and the Liz Trust teams heard that, because this is coming down the track. But, as Tony Smith says, with smart technology that exists, it's all soluble. None of it needs to be a problem, but it does need planning and resources. Now, a couple of other quick points while I'm with you before the break. What the Farage of the EU divorce bill has risen by a further £10 billion to £42 billion. I mean, it is almost unbelievable. Part of that has been weaker sterling over the course of the last year or so. Um, quite frankly, what on earth we're paying all this money to these people for, given the level of obstructionism, I simply don't know. Oven ready deal? Anyone? Other thoughts? Oh, you've got to see this. Now, you know, I had a big debate with you live on air. Should I get the booster? I had a number of doctors coming on the show telling me I must get the booster because it will stop me getting COVID. I wasn't convinced by that argument and I didn't get the booster. I accept the fact that if I got COVID, I might be sicker, but I didn't buy into it. Well, have a little look at this montage of world leaders. You're OK. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Hey, folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for COVID. And when people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. Dr. Fauci says he has COVID again. If you've done the right thing and gotten vaccinated, you deserve the freedom to be safe from COVID-19. And this morning, I learned, I, I tested positive for COVID-19 as well. The three doses that you've been prevented, not just from serious illness, but from getting this virus, this Omicron variant, and therefore giving it to others. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is in quarantine for seven days after testing positive to COVID. So I, I'm fully vaccinated. It gives me some comfort. Anthony Albanese has just tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, having received two doses of AstraZeneca, it's a very effective vaccine protection from symptomatic illness and therefore risk of transmission to others. I'm not telling you what you should think. I am not an anti-vanx conspiracy theorist or any other kind. But isn't it interesting when you hear people like Biden saying, get the vaccine, you can't catch COVID. Well, you know what? You can. I've still not had my booster and I'm perfectly happy. And finally, on this What the Farage section, here was Donald Trump speaking at a rally in America about climate change policy. Have a listen to this. Climate crisis hoax is even risking famine and starvation. As we speak, farmers in the Netherlands, of all places, are courageously opposing the climate tyranny of the Dutch government. Can you believe this? Which wants to dramatically cut Dutch farm production despite growing food shortages. They're saying you can't farm your land. We're not going to give you fertilizer. You have to get rid of the cattle. You know why, right? You know why. I won't tell you, because they'll say, I said something, isn't that terrible? They want to get rid of the cattle because it, what it does to the globe, half of your cattle they want out. You'll be next. You'll be next. In our movement, we stand against the climate fanatics.
We stand with the peaceful Dutch farmers who are bravely fighting for their freedom. It's horrible what's happening. Very interesting, I thought, that Trump picked up on those Dutch farmer protests. We've covered them a couple of times on this show as well. And whether you like the rhetoric or the style or not, the fact is what we are doing in the name of fighting climate change is we're putting massive pressure. We're not able to produce enough energy and we're running out of enough food. It doesn't make sense when India and China ignore it all. In a moment, I'll be joined by Carlton Leach. Now, he was a football hooligan, a criminal, He's now an author and trying to act as a mentor to young men not to go down the wrong route. Crikey, we could do with him in Westminster, I think. Back with you in a moment with Talking Pints. It is time for Talking Pints. I'm joined by Carlton Leach, who joins me on the programme. Welcome to Cheers. the programme. Now, we've had, over the weekend, a friendly football match between Tottenham and Rangers, ending in extreme violence. Statements being put out today yeah. by all the football authorities. They're going to clamp down, crack down on violence, on bad language, on discriminatory behaviour. We've heard it all before. Now, you are... A, as I understand it, passionate Hammers man, passionate yes, definitely, yeah. West Ham well, from, from supporter. Through. And this is sort of from being down there, yeah. is it? The age of six, yeah. I was in Glasgow on Tuesday we, at Rangers. We played Rangers in the friendly on Tuesday and then they took them on the Saturday. Right. And But we, because of the, the, the thing, we sort of came together and we've got a mutual passion, like obviously Britain as well. And... Uh, the, the, the love of the British and the Union Jack, and uh, we all came together, we all drunk together. There was no bad language, we mixed together. We was, well, I'm we, pleased to hear that. It, it was brilliant. It was the best, one of the best days of my life. Because it didn't happen with Spurs. No. But no. you yourself, Carlton, as a football supporter, you were associated with some pretty violent outfits, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was it about? Was, it, was going to football about the violence, or was it about the football? It's both. It was um, driving up in the East End and, you know, a working-class background, you know, uh, fighting was a currency of life, if, if you like to, like to say. So you made your reputation. The thing is, if you didn't stand up for yourself, you got bullied and put down. And it's like most things. And so you learned, I uh, was bullied as a child, you learned to stand up. And um, I had just one sister, a lot of big families, loads of brothers, went to school. You had to fight with one brother, <coughs> and brothers come round. And uh, my I started going football with my dad from, from the age of six uh, in 1965. Loved football, you know, and West Ham and um, it, I, a family grew. I got to meet people. West Ham won the World Cup, didn't they? That's, what, they that's did. what West Ham's supporters say. Oh, I'm glad you said it. I was waiting for it to come up. I didn't want to keep throwing it in there. But, yeah, we did win the World Cup. And I remember watching it in black and white at the time because yeah. we had black and white tellies. But you were involved with some bad stuff. Yeah. But it got kind of worse, didn't it? You met a guy called Tony Tucker. Yeah, 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 as years later. We, we both grew up in the East End, Forest Gate. Uh, he went to one school around the corner, a bit older than me, and we heard of each other growing up, you know, you get reputations as a kid. And we met years later in through the rave scene, security, and when we bumped into each other, we, a friendship bonded between us, you know. He, had his, he was running uh, security in Essex, I was running security in London, and he had security companies, so we got together. 
I needed companies, and he helped me open an office up in Ilford. But he was making money in other ways too, wasn't he? Of course he? he was, yeah, 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 yeah. And but not strictly, as they said, he was a big importer of drugs. It was more to do with the club scene, supplying ecstasy, which a lot of people was well, involved in. Well, not much in. difference, is there? No, no, of course not. He's still drugs. Yeah. yeah. And, you, not, and, and you got yeah. involved in this world. Yeah, 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 like, like muscle. Going on. The thing was, you know, coming from a poor background and and never going to be wealthy as such, you know, listen, I, I've done my apprenticeship in the docks as a ship repairer, Royal Albert Docks. And when I've done my apprenticeship, Margaret Fashion shut it down and built a, 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 put a runway there. So we all got put out of work, you know, the Royal Albert Docks. And I went in, I, I think if... Some would argue that Jack Dash, the communist leader of the Dockers, didn't do them any favours no, either. No, but, no, but... no, I don't. So, but it was, that was my opinion, and it was a job I enjoyed, and the, the, the camaraderie had been the esteem. And I guess the temptation of drugs is the money, isn't it? Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, if... When the rave scene started in 1988, what people don't understand, it took a lot of violence off the streets, a lot of drinking. There was no drinking. In the early days, when we'd done acid house, getting the warehouse, Five or six thousand youngsters with 13 of us doing the security with no violence. And then, what, three weeks before we started doing them, I was working in clubs of 200 people. And by the end of the night, they're sticking glasses in each other's faces, fighting and rolling around the streets and women fighting and all that. And all of a sudden, there's 6,000 people, soft drinks, dancing all night long, hugging each other. I know a lot of it's down to the drugs and the music. But for me, it was a it was a completely different world, and and I was 29 before I, started, before I took my first drug, and because I, I never took drugs, I've never used to drink, I smoked a cigarette, that was it, and I thought I want to know what the, what's changing these people to get so many people under a roof to be so happy. But this all ends in a major national yes. news story, huge yeah. national yeah. news story, with Pat Tate, Craig Rolfe, and Tony Tucker. And there we are. It's the mid-90s. They're in a Range Rover. Next place called Rettenden. Yeah. And that. Yeah. Were you lucky you weren't there on the day? Well, Tony wanted me to, to sit about this mate and uh, blah, blah, blah. And he said there'd be some nice if you could become a lawyer. I couldn't. I was under an investigation on two inquiries with the police <laughs> at the time. And both not guilty. Anyway, so... I believe, uh, I believe yeah, you. Yeah. I, believe uh, I was innocent. <laughs> Officer. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, uh, but Tony's and my friendship was... It wasn't to do with the drug world. It was it was a personal friendship. We, we became friends. We went away on holiday together. We used to go to with Nigel Ben. We, we was his security mm. team. We trained with him. We went, like... To, so know, this was pretty for you, then? Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was like losing a brother. Because we saw yeah. this... You know, on our I, I honestly say I broke down and cried. Don't matter how hard you are, if you love someone, whether it's... Whether he, he, was, he was the brother I never had, if you know what I mean. He was... We got on so well, but how we was behind... completely different how we was to the public eye. We expect to see things like this in Mexico, but to see three guys... Yeah. ...gunned down, dead, yeah. in a Range Rover in Essex, and it obviously had a big effect upon you. Yes, major, but it made me turn one to... Um, I actually what, because realized, you feared you'd be dead? Yeah, yeah, because I, I had children and I had responsibilities like, you know, I was, I was selfish, I was narcissistic, I was living in the world of drug dealers and security and, you know, partying and, you know, and I've become a very selfish man. But what it did, I mean, look at 
and I realised that that could be anyone. You are invincible, you think you're like, anyone can be killed. Even whether it's, it's on that scene or in politics. If someone wants to kill you they, you, they will kill you. So how do you turn it around? Just that wake-up call. That, like, not knowing who to trust, the things that happen, seeing what I see. The, 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 like, like, you know, the, the died when he got the news. His dad never knew nothing about his lifestyle. And I always just say to Tony, you need to tell your mum and dad. They need to know... You know, the world you live in, like, oh, I'm a, I'm a businessman and blah, blah. My dad's an old East End boy, and I, I never told him one lie. If he asked me a question, I would tell him, because I loved and respect the man. And he always had my back. He, he didn't agree with what I did, mm. but he, 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 he always, like, you know. And part of your, Carlton, part of your turning this around is book, yeah. muscle, and that becomes a film. Yeah, Rise and of the and so, so suddenly of... your stories of interest to other people. Yeah, yeah, um, which is very strange, really, because I, I've done documentaries with Kate Cry and you know a thing called Our Bastards. Am I right to say yeah, that? Yeah. yeah, that was it. Was Channel Four, and I've done a few do documentaries. Really, good. I started doing quite a lot of stuff with television and different things. Quite well known on the circuit. Got in the screen, and then I decided I got invited to meet John Blake, publishers through Kate Cry and books and that, and he said, we want to write a book about you. I don't know why, and Kate Gray said, you know, you've got quite a good note, sort of name in there. So I said, all right, and um, I, I wrote the book Muscle, and then within a certain time, John Blake said to me, he said, this would be a great film, like that. And I thought, a film about, mm. I'm not even dead. You normally, <laughs> like, you have to be dead to have a film made about you, you know? And I'm thinking, no, nah. and then, you know, I met a certain person who, uh, and he said to me, I'll give him a copy of the book, come back, and he was getting into films. And he went to me, like, they, they want to, we, I reckon we can make a film about your book. So the writers put the thing together, the crew and everything. And, um, yeah, we made this film and, we, and it was called Rise of the Foot Soldier. And, um, you know, obviously the first two I was involved in, two in my life, the rest of them I've had nothing to do with, I've never watched them. Because I think it insults the memory of my best mate now. It's, they've become like carry-on films rather than true fact. Do you hope, Carton, that... You know, through your writing, yeah, and through record. You said yourself you were narcissistic. Yeah. your kids were getting a bad deal. Yeah. You wouldn't yeah. have been there one day. Yeah. Are these stories that can help stop other people going down this? Yeah, path? I've just been. Uh, well, the, what I've done with this book, I've involved all my children. So this is your new book. Yeah, my latest one, the final say. I'm 63, and I've involved my children, my son, my sister, close friends, because I tell their story how they were about the dead. And I, and I said to them, be truthful. I didn't need to be a lot worse. But I didn't realise that no matter what I did, because they, they, how much they loved me, and that brought me to none of it. Like, the, the thing, Jay who works for me, he, he got the stories off of them. So when I actually see him, to my but I gave them the chance about their father, which a lot yeah. of people, because of behaviour and being a, famous villain or whatever they are. I think, no, they deserve a say about live with me from, from, from being born. I'm their dad. And the good and the bad. And so my sister. Can you put other people off going down this road? Yeah, I'm just doing the thing at the moment uh, with a thing that he does, works with youth. He's government-backed, and he wants me to do chats with youngsters about gang violence and explain to them. I've done it before. I've done Yaleeds University. I've travelled the country, Aaron Gate and stuff. 
uh, with Daniel Taylor's dad. Yep. I have spoke, but I want to do a lot more of that because I've always kept my children away from that, that side of life because I've, um, I've protected them because I thought, I'll put my neck on the line because I want them to have the things that I never had for, for, for yeah, being in the workplace. Yeah, no, I get that. And that's why I've done it. Yeah. Not for the, not for the, you know. <laughs> but the, it's, the, the, it's football separate. Yeah. The actual underworld and underworld and earning that money, um, that was to make my their, their lives and the holidays I couldn't have. You know. But it's still not the right route, no, is it? No, no, no. Well, well it's Carlton, all I can say is thank you for coming on, thank sharing you your me. story. I've got the utmost respect for you. And, well, thank you. Well yeah. done for turning your life around yeah, the way you have. Thank you very have. much, and thank you for having me. And if you can put a few people off going down yeah, that route. Yeah, listen, if you're out there, read the book. Yeah. I will. Uh, that's yours, Nigel. Thank you, mate. Um, but I just, you know, you need to talk and talk to older people with experience. Social workers are not the answer. Lead. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for joining me. <clears throat> We've got a few seconds left of the programme. Of course, it is now time for Barrage the Farage. Mick asks, is private health care the way forward? Mick, my argument on this is people who can afford it comfortably. There are lots of people who cannot afford it, but if you incentivise them to go private, you might just lift some of the burden off the NHS. Mary asks me, there's never been a woman leader of the Labour Party. They go on about diversity endlessly. The Conservatives are an awful lot more diverse than the Labour Party, where it seems you need to live in a £4 million house in North London and preferably have a title of some kind. It's really quite comical. Emily asks me, do you think that Brexit will get fully completed with the new Prime Minister? Oh, if I thought that, I'd be telling you which one I back. I wouldn't just be telling you, I'd be jumping up and down and celebrating that someone was a proper Brexit. If these guys can't even get a grip on what's happening in the English Channel, then it isn't going to happen. As ever with these things, I hope that I'm proved wrong. I just doubt that I will be. Thank you for joining me. I'm back with you tomorrow night. This is GB News. Well, it's also the hindsight issue. Here's a lady who wrote a, a very funny, I enjoyed it, Friends uh, sitcom 25 years ago. And now she's going, oh, I should have known better 25 years ago. I should have had somebody in from an ethnic diverse background. I mean, when you write something and uh, it's there and you sell it uh, to the studio, now you have to say, oh, hold on a second. I should have put somebody in. I mean, to me, that's tokenism. The Briefing with Arlene Foster. Every Friday at three.